Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below. This program is brought to you by Emory University. One of the things that I find absolutely fascinating is how the, the possibility of what the civil rights movement could have been as a human rights movement. In the 1940s, the NAACP had begun to conceptualize the issue facing black people in America, not as civil rights, the right to vote, the right to a fair trial, um, the right to a jury of your peers, the right not to be illegally searched and seized, those things that we know as the Bill of Rights, but instead as human rights, the right to education, the right to health care, the right to housing, the right to employment. And the thing that was driving the NAACP to in fact look at this was the condition of black America in the 1940s. You know, the massive discrimination, the kinds of, of public policies that were being put in place that systematically excluded African Americans from the, the bounty of America. For instance, um, there was the Social Security Act in the 1930s. We understand Social Security today. But in, in the 1930s, it was put in place because people had worked so hard only to have the, the economic destruction of the, of the um, Depression throw them out of work with absolutely nothing, not barely the clothes on their backs. And these are people who had worked for 30, 40 years. So what happened with the Social Security Act is that you have this powerful, wonderful piece of legislation and then the Southern Democrats made sure that what was inserted in this legislation to provide the safety net was to in fact exclude two of the major occupations that African Americans held, domestic workers and the agricultural field. So in fact you had 70% of African Americans excluded from Social Security for decades. This is part of what the NAACP is looking at. What they're also seeing in terms of education, you know, we think about the Brown decision of 1954. But going before that, as the NAACP was looking at the conditions in these poll tax states, such as South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, because the quality of education was so horrific for African Americans, over 50% of adult African Americans over the age of 25 had less than five years of formal education. Begin to think about what that means when you've got over half of your adult population having less than five years of formal education. Think about how well you're able to navigate in a, a society, in an economy that is becoming more technologically advanced with five years of formal education. This is what the NAACP is looking at. What they're also seeing is that in terms of healthcare, you've got this Jim Crow education system. The American Medical Association is saying that for every 
1,500 in the population, you need one doctor. The average for African Americans was one for every 3,337. Think about what it takes to be able to go in and see your doctor if you got one for every 3,337. In Mississippi, it was one for every 18,527. This is what the NAACP is saying. And, and when they're looking at this, they're saying, you know, the right to vote is important. It is powerful, the right to a fair trial. Given what we've been looking at in terms of the lynchings, in terms of the Southern justice, absolutely. But it's not going to be enough to break centuries of slavery and Jim Crow. We need to have human rights. And one of the vehicles that they began to look at was the founding of the United Nations which came out of the Second World War, which came out of the atrocities of Nazi Germany, which came out of the atrocities of Japan that Japan had committed in Asia, in China, in Indonesia, in Korea. So with this framework of human rights, the NAACP decided, particularly after the violence in 1946 that went absolutely unabated against African Americans, particularly black veterans, that they needed to go to the UN because as the NAACP had tried to talk to the state legislatures, as they tried to talk to the White House, as they talked to the Attorney General, everybody was saying there's nothing we can do. And so as you're looking for these levers of power, they breached the, the citadel of the United Nations and the Commission on Human Rights. And they presented a petition, an appeal to the world. Now this petition was beautifully done. It was led by W.E.B. Du Bois, who was a co-founder of the NAACP, and it began to document the systematic violation of human rights in the United States against African Americans. Now, the Cold War has begun in 1947, and the U.S. looked at this document by the NAACP with its 400,000 dues-paying members, because this is now a big dog. The, the NAACP has credibility. And they have put top scholars working on this document that they're presenting to the UN. When you read through the State Department papers, the State Department is going, oh my God, what are we going to do? We have got to stop this thing. If the Soviets get a hold of this, the Soviet Union is going to have a field day. It's just going to prove everything that they said. We can swat away some of this other stuff as propaganda. This stuff is so beautifully documented, we can't call this propaganda. Okay, we know it's the truth, but we, so we've got to figure out a way how to stop the truth from, from being aired in the UN. We do not want our dirty laundry aired during the Cold War. One of the ways that they went about trying to stop the NAACP was to use the power of Eleanor Roosevelt who had incredible cachet. She was the chair of the Commission on Human Rights. She was also a member of the NAACP Board of Directors. As that petition is moving its way through the UN, Eleanor and the State Department pulled that thing back, stomped on it, beat on it, used every Robert's Rules of Order to strangle that thing, bury it in the bowels of the UN's, hoping that it would never see the light of day. Now the Soviets are in there fighting going, oh no, I think this is a really good thing and we really, we really need to talk about this. And the U.S. is like, no we don't. But no, we really, no we don't. We, no we do, what, talk about what thing? There's no petition here. When that thing got strangled, 
part of what then leads to the NAACP moving off of its framework of thinking about the struggle for black equality as a human rights struggle was because this was the Cold War, Eleanor Roosevelt and the State Department said, oh, you must be a communist. Only a communist dominated organization would have the audacity, the temerity, the nerve to create a document like this and send it to the United Nations. That's a communist stunt. And as you're talking about the right to housing, the right to health care, the right to education, that sounds like a Marxist. You must be Marxist. Now, again, this is the Cold War. This is the beginning of the second Red Scare. This is when being even hinted at that you're a communist means the kiss of death in American society. And the NAACP is going, no, no, we're not communist. We're just fighting for the human rights of African Americans. I mean, look at this. We have African Americans, over 50% who have less than five years of education. That's a problem. No, the problem is, is that you went to the United Nations. Well, we tried to, no, the problem is you must be a communist. But we, no, the problem is you must be red. Do you want to end up on the attorney general's list of communist dominated organizations? And the NAACP was like, oh my God, we have got to figure out a way how to, 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 how, oh my, what do we do now? And what you begin to see them do is to pull back from human rights as the foundation for black equality in the United States. And this pullback becomes reinforced by the time we get to 1954. There are a whole series of events that happen. One of the final events that happened is this thing called the Bricker Amendment. And the Bricker Amendment was launched by um, a conservative Republican uh, senator out of Ohio, John Bricker, that was to change the ways that treaties were ratified in the United States. They were particularly going after these UN treaties dealing with human rights. And the way that they were doing it, you know, now, you know, this is almost a basic civic lesson 101. Now to ratify a treaty takes two thirds of the Senate. Under the Bricker constitutional amendment, it was gonna take two thirds of the Senate, both houses of Congress and all 48 state legislatures. Begin to think about the Mississippi state legislature discussing the Genocide Convention. The Southern Democrats were already clear as they looked at the Genocide Convention, which came out of the Holocaust. They said, oh, this looks like a backdoor method to a federal anti-lynching bill. We've got to stop this. The Southern Democrats were very clear. Senator Walter George out of Georgia said, as I look at these human rights treaties, they just might affect the colored question meaning that it was going to change the place of African-Americans in American society. That it was in fact going to be freeing. That in fact, the, by providing education, then all of a sudden, economic opportunities begin to open up. And as economic opportunities begin to open up, then that laboring that happens in the fields that the South so depended upon, all of a sudden wouldn't be there. This was frightening because it was going to change the balance of power. 
So what it took to bring down the Bricker Amendment, because it had the necessary two-thirds votes in the Senate to go out into the states for the constitutional amendment to be ratified. Is, is that you got, for, for one thing, you got massive lobbying by Eisenhower. President Eisenhower is looking up going, man, this looks like the old Articles of Confederation. And you know, we're trying to do this NATO thing. We're trying to be the leader of the free world. And now, all of a sudden, if I have absolutely no power and the states have to ratify everything, we're not gonna get anything done. And we're trying to, wait, we're trying to fight the Cold War. And yes, we know that all of this stuff about the right to healthcare, that's socialism. I have no problem with that. But we already have a, a, a process in place to stop that from darkening America's doorstep. Do not pass the Bricker Amendment. Senate looked at him and went, Shh, we got work to do. And so when this bill is coming down and they're voting and they're counting their heads, one thousand, and it's like, yes, yes, yes. It looks like they've got their two thirds. And then somebody says, where's Harley? Where's Harley? Where's Harley Kilgore? Democrat out of West Virginia. And they're looking for Harley. They're looking for Harley. Somebody says, Shh. they're running all over the building trying to find him. Somebody says, has anybody tried the bar across the street? So they send the Senate pages out going to trying to find Harley. There he is at the bar across the street in the middle of this landmark historic vote. And he is lit. I mean, he's, he's you know, they talk about three sheets to the wind. He's about nine sheets to the wind. I mean, Harley is lit. So one aide gets under this arm, one aide gets under that arm. They kind of drag him back across the street. They open up the Senate doors as they're doing the final count. They look up and they say, oh, we see our esteemed senator from West Virginia. How do you vote? And you hear from the background, nay. Now, nobody knows if that was really Harley because we think he was passed out. So it could have been one of the aides, but the Bricker Amendment went down by one drunken vote. But in that debate, it made it very clear that human rights, the right to education, the right to housing, the right to health care, were seen as communistic, foreign to American soil. When the Bricker Amendment is defeated in 1954, the things, the themes that course through it are still there. So when the official civil rights movement begins in 1954 with the Brown decision and then in 55 with Montgomery, you already have a very narrowed frame in order to fight for black equality. You have the narrowed frame of civil rights and not human rights. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University. Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below.